1: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China produced in partnership with Sup China. Subscribe to SUPChina's weekly email newsletter, download our handy smartphone app, check out our growing network of podcasts, and of course, sign up for Sup China access. More on that anon. I am Kaiser Guo, and I'm coming to you today from the Columbia School of Social Work in New York. Uh, Joining me here is a man with an advanced degree in antisocial work, Mr. Jeremy Goldberg.
0: (laughs) Jeremy, greet the people, won't you? Hello, people. (laughs) Yeah, let me just quickly talk about Access, give a little plug. So, Access is our paid membership program, and you get a members-only newsletter. You get access to our Slack messaging channel where you can chat with our editorial team anytime you feel like it. And I just want to say that this uh, next week we will be launching, this will probably be in the past by the time this podcast airs, but we are launching a uh, uh, moderated chat service with various experts in in different uh, subject areas uh, on our Slack channel. So please join us there.
1: That channel is getting really lively. There's all sorts of terrific discussion going on already. Uh, So if you want to to, you know, hear what Jeremy thinks about Xi Jinping's new announcement or, or, or what I <laughs> or think Or some other
0: it. smart people who are our members, I Lots of really, really
1: smart people who are our members. Yeah, absolutely. So please join us. So China's record in poverty alleviation is undoubtedly very impressive. It's generally not in dispute that China has in the last several decades contributed more than any other country to global poverty reduction. In certain circles, so if you say China or the Chinese government or, God forbid, the party has lifted X hundred million people out of poverty... You're going to get shouted down by people who insist that the leaders really did nothing more than get out of the way and let the you know entrepreneurial energies of the, the Chinese people do the rest. Uh, the fact is, though, there have been major government assistance programs, though whether these can be credited with lifting
0: hundreds of millions out of poverty is, is another matter. Here with us to address this and other questions is Gao Qin, professor of social policy and social work and director of the China Center for Social Policy. Qin is author of an excellent book on the subject of social assistance in China, published just last year, called Welfare, Work and Poverty, Social Assistance in China. The book looks at one of China's most important social assistant programs, the DBA, which covers some 60 million people. Qin, we are delighted that you could join us on Seneca.
2: Thank you, and welcome to New York.
0: Oh, thank you. Thanks for having us here. This yeah, great. it's hard for us country bumpkins. You know, Kaiser got lost in the subway on the way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got on the wrong turn. Sorry I was late.
1: Anyway, Chin, uh, since this is your first time on Seneca, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, where you went to school, uh, and how you got interested in the subject of, of poverty alleviation?
2: Wow, a profound question. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I'm initially from Shanxi, Uh actually a designated poor county uh, in Shanxi. I came to the U.S. in 2001, not too long before September 11th, Mm. which was a major happening in my life, both personally and professionally. It had a huge impact on me and on my peers uh, arriving in the U.S. and uh, experiencing this national tragedy together with everyone else. I always, growing up, wanted to study poverty for some reason. I think I was very heavily influenced by my grandparents, Uh with whom I lived uh, until I left for college. Wow. My parents lived in the same town, but they were busy building the socialist China. (laughs) So I was uh, in my grandparents' household. My grandmother was illiterate, but she always cared about people who are less fortunate, people who are poor. So I inherited that and always wanted to do something about it, uh, whether it's at a personal level or a broader macro level. At the same time, my grandfather was a government official in the county government, and he talked about country affairs, world affairs, all the time, and often with me, because I was the third person living with them. And that also influenced me a lot. I felt that things could be done, changes could be made that would uh, impact people's lives. Um, So I think those two forces together shaped my career choice. So from a young age, I wanted to study something social, social policy, social change, um, and it's always related to poverty.
1: And you came over in 2001, and that was for graduate school?
2: That's for doctoral studies, actually also in the Columbia School of Social Work. Oh, great. So after graduation, I went to another university, Fordham, uh, in near Lincoln Center right. for 11 years as a faculty member. I just returned to Columbia two years ago. Okay,
0: mm-hmm. wow. Let's get into the meat of the topic. I think Probably all of our listeners are aware of China's level of poverty at the end of the Cultural Revolution, in other words, very poor, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and have some idea of where China has arrived at today. But I'd like to hear it from a genuine expert in poverty alleviation. What numbers do you use when you need some shorthand to describe what has happened to the poor?
2: Um, So it's widely no and it is a fact the chinese government did a lot to alleviate poverty uh, since the economic reforms so i would say at this current stage the chinese government used a three-pronged approach Mm -hmm. uh, to reduce poverty. The first is development. Uh, The rising tide of economic reforms and development lifting many boats uh, out of poverty that is uh, widely known and if you look at the poverty lines used by the government it's been uh, lifted three times over the years. The current poverty line was set in 2011 which right now translates to about three thousand yuan per person per year, so roughly uh, five hundred U.S. dollars. Um, not so $1 high. $1.90
1: ninety a day, or something like that. Is the, I remember reading something. It's like and
2: that's the World Bank poverty line. Okay. Yeah, okay. Uh, that's a dollar ninety per but day China per person is per day. Higher, is it's a little bit right? higher yeah, than okay. that. Um, so according to that poverty line, right now about uh, fifty-five million people. Um, Live below that poverty line, mostly in rural areas. And, and
1: where would that have been in, say,
2: 1978? Oh, that's 95 percent of the Chinese population. So well over a billion people. Right. I yeah. mean, they're
0: not even. I assume they're not even numbers. From are, are they there? There are official statistics. Are.
2: Uh, actually, I have a chart which I don't have right now, but it, it it was over 90% of the people mm-hmm. uh, back then. So the progress is huge. Uh, but at the same time, as the development trend uh, continues, income inequality was also growing. So there, are the super rich of China, there's also the super poor of China, right. who cannot escape poverty through the market forces or the labor force. So that's uh, what I cover in this book about social assistance where the government comes in and provides a safety net for the very poor
1: okay so that's the other prong
2: That's the other prong, yes. So it started in the early 1990s, first as local experiments in the more developed cities. So Shanghai was the first one. In 1993, if you guys could uh, imagine back then, the SOE reforms, state-owned enterprises and collective enterprises were reforming and laying off a lot of people in the cities. So Shanghai and a few other cities launched this program called Dibao to provide the basic livelihood.
1: Yeah, let's, let's do the whole history of Dibao in just a second. But uh, you, you raise this, this, the origins of Dibao as being about urban poverty. Mm-hmm. I want to understand how the Chinese government actually counts poverty, uh, mm-hmm. counts the poor. Because, I mean, on the one hand, they're using a poverty line that's actually, as you say, slightly higher than the World Bank's poverty line. But on the other hand, I've understood that they don't count urban poor among uh, in, in poverty. Is that correct?
2: You're very right. Yes, the official national poverty line only applies to the rural areas. So the 3,000 yuan poverty line I mentioned was launched in 2011, and that's for rural areas. Before that, there was another poverty line also for rural areas. That was 1,196 yuan per person per year. Uh That's much lower, but there was never an urban official poverty line. And uh, most urban areas use the Dibao line uh to count their poor. Oh, okay. So mm-hmm.
1: if you were to to give a, a more realistic uh number who fall below uh not the government but a um uh, maybe a, a more reasonable standard for poverty, what would you put that number at and and how big of a how many people are not being counted uh from the urban poor?
2: Mm. That's a question that's been debated a lot because of the lack of a poverty line. The urban Dibao line is localized. I see. So if based on that line, right now about 15 million of urban people fall below that line. But if you and I live in different cities, we are subject to different Dibao lines. Of course, there are recent discussions about adopting a more relative poverty line, which means that you use a percentage of the medium income of the society to capture the poverty line and then measure how many people fall below that line. But that's not going to be adopted officially in a long time, uh, I think.
0: Uh, Chin, sorry, to just clarify then. So officially, there are 50 million rural people in poverty. And and if you go by the debau lines of various cities, an additional 15 million?
2: The 15 million is in urban areas mm-hmm. who are currently covered by the urban Dibao.
0: Right. So we're mm-hmm. looking at 65 million would be the official figure for... About, right. yes. And does that make sense to you, that number?
2: That's an interesting question. Uh, I study poverty. I never asked myself that question. What would be a fair number of uh, people who are poor? So... Poverty lines internationally are arbitrary. Uh, many countries use absolute poverty lines, which China does, and the U.S. does. So it's an estimated perfect uh, absolute poverty line, and you gauge people's poverty status above or below that line, in the OECD countries, a relative poverty line is used. That is, the poverty line is adjusted according to the distribution of income in the society, and it's usually set at 50 or 60% of the median income in the society. And that could change the picture every year.
1: So do you have a sense that if you did apply that OECD standard, uh, and if you did sort of of back-of-the-envelope calculations... do you think that China is severely undercounting its, its poor?
2: According to that standard, yes, Okay, very much. So in the Dibao research, I did apply that line uh, to compare against the official Dibao line and official poverty line results. If you use a relative poverty line, the results are much less promising. How, than-
0: how, uh, like roughly, uh, is it 100 million, 200 million? I mean, what are we talking about if we use a relative poverty line?
2: Mm, I don't have the national estimation with me. Usually we apply that line to the DIBAL population to see where they fall if we use a higher poverty line. Mm-hmm. But nationally, yeah, there must be some estimation. I don't have the numbers okay. right okay. with me. Yeah. No
0: problem. So then let's get back to the Dibal. Um <laughs> the minimum livelihood guarantee. C- can you give us a short history of the DIBAL and tell us what the program does and doesn't do?
2: Mm-hmm. So the Dibao is a typical means-tested welfare program that exists in many countries. Uh, people have to apply for the benefits, and if their income falls below the local Dibao line, they could qualify. And the benefits they get would be the difference between their income and the official local Dibao line. Um in terms of history it started in 1993 in Shanghai because Shanghai was faced with uh, a lot of layoffs uh, from the state-owned uh, enterprises and the local government was worried about people protesting um that would affect uh, social stability so they offered this um uh, protection safety net for people to have something to fall back to um and back then also the local government had quite some autonomy to experiment with social policies, and Shanghai did that. Uh, Soon after, a few other cities, I think five or six uh, developed cities also experimented. By 1999, all the cities in China adopted the policy, and that became a central government policy issued by the Ministry of Civil Affairs. Uh, So it was adopted nationwide in urban areas. Rural China also experimented with Dibao back then, but it was not until 2007 that it was adopted nationwide in rural areas. Wow,
0: really? 2007? That's quite late.
2: It's late. It's recent. How close
0: are the parallels between welfare programs in the United States uh, and Dibao in China? Mm -hmm. Are Are they comparable at all?
2: They are quite similar in that their assistance levels are both low. They are both implemented locally, which means the local governments have a lot of say. Um, in that regard, um, in China, the central government gives broad regulations and sets the rules, but the local governments have to commit a budget and also decide how they screen, how they implement the program In the U.S., uh, the most similar policy is called TANIF, Temporary Assistance to Needy Families, Mm -hmm. uh, which uh, came through in 1996 through the U.S. welfare reform, uh, which replaced the previous policy. The previous policy in the U.S. was that you could keep applying and Getting the benefit as long as you qualify. But since 1996, you could only get it up to five years in your lifetime. So it was a big shift in the U.S. welfare policy that uh, the idea is to promote work. People have to work and be responsible for getting the welfare benefit. But in reality, many states have even stricter rules about how the welfare program is implemented. And uh, a lot more people couldn't benefit from either welfare or work. So in the U.S., it's a big problem as well.
1: Thanks, Bill Clinton. (laughs) 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 Uh, (laughs) so so tell us about the research that you did for the book, uh, how you designed the research, uh, what resources you had available, what kind of field work you actually did, what sorts of people you spoke to, and and so
2: on. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So this book really builds on my previous 10-plus years of research Uh about Dibao. I was always interested in poverty and uh, what solutions we could have. And uh, having lived in the U.S. for quite some years and witnessing how the U.S. experienced This transition, I was interested in providing a comprehensive evaluation of Dibao's progress. So what I did mostly was to conduct large-scale national surveys Mm -hmm. and quantitative analysis by myself with my colleagues and also drawing from other people's work. I didn't quite do a lot of field work myself. Mostly I drew from other scholars uh, who mostly do qualitative work. Mm -hmm. And they have done a lot of field work in both urban and rural areas to study Dibao.
1: Did you find that, that you met with a lot of help or any resistance from uh, local government officials or even provincial level uh, or central officials?
2: Not much. So again, I didn't personally do a lot of interviews, okay. uh, but from the other researchers who reported their findings, some talked to local officials, um, some even talked to central government officials, many talked to the Debao recipients and local community community members. I don't feel they had encountered a lot of resistance. Of course, some dynamics could be interesting. Uh, For example, sometimes you come into a community accompanied by the local officials, Uh right? That would change the responses you get, possibly. But the scholars are open about that. They talk about it. I actually, over the years, talked to both central and local officials, and they have been very open, and they welcome the analysis and suggestions. So that's been very encouraging. Uh, One side note is that across the different government departments, the Ministry of Civil Affairs, especially the department that oversees Dibao, Mm -hmm. has been very open in publishing Dibao data in terms of the number of beneficiaries, the funds allocated, the usage. So And that's down to the county level, very rich data. For scholars, it's been a great opportunity to really be able to use that data and provide an evaluation of this policy. That's great, that level of transparency.
0: Jin, aside from Dibao, um, I mean, Dibao is obviously one of the most important government programs for addressing poverty. But what are some other poverty alleviation programs that exist alongside Dibao? You know, and I I find myself actually asking this question every day because for my sins, I I scan, if not read, the People's Daily Mm -hmm. and Xinhua News Agency's website every day. And I mean, for the last several years, for most of Xi Jinping's tenure, uh, getting rid of poverty, uh, eliminating poverty, has been, uh, you know, a major story mm-hmm. every day. Yes. And of course, there's this target to eliminate poverty by yep. 2020. So, yeah. What are yeah. the other programs aside from Dibao?
2: So, I would say the third. Uh, element. Uh, the other prong would be right. We,
0: we missed out. A prong yes,
2: earlier. <laughs> would be the targeted eradication of poverty in China by 2020. That's uh, very much front and center in the current government's vision of China going forward. Before that, the Chinese government had long Um, promoted different approaches or initiatives to target rural poverty. For example, as you both know, the uh, 西部大开发, West Development Campaign, was about trying to develop the West region, lots of it is the rural areas. There was also the initiative to build a new socialist countryside, uh, which provided agricultural livelihood subsidies to rural residents. Uh, there was also, I mean, you could categorize it as part of the welfare development, but the huge expansion of pensions and healthcare to the rural citizens during the, uh, the Huwen uh, era. Yeah. That was huge. I mean, you don't necessarily can get the rural older people, younger people jobs, but you could provide social protection for them. And that was big. But right now, the new focus is the targeted eradication by 2020. And there are a full array of measures, approaches adopted in that campaign to achieve this goal, which is fast approaching.
1: Yes. Uh, What are some of those measures?
2: There are many. One is called pairing up between Uh the East and West, which is a... approach used uh, a lot in the past by the Chinese government. So if you happen to be an official in Shanghai, you could be sent to a remote uh, province or village, (laughs) and uh, you would bring resources, technology, personnel, and money to help the local residents to escape poverty. Another approach is e-commerce. So one characteristic of this new campaign is the mass mobilization of all elements of the society. So many private companies, uh, including Alibaba, um, Jindong, Uh uh, are participating. They build uh, e-platforms for the rural poor to be able to send, uh, sell their products to the outside world. Um, so that's another channel. And in this approach, many financial organizations, such as insurance companies, uh, banks, would also participate, giving favorable loans to local residents and communities.
1: Uh, that Sounds so uh, very enlightened, I, Jeremy. You'd probably agree that the Hu and when period in a lot of the minds of people who watch China are is is associated with a sort of more compassion about the, the plight of the rural poor. It was during that time where you know agricultural taxes were abolished, or uh, you know, or, or consolidated.
2: Mm-hmm. Also, the compulsory education compulsory law, law was passed. Mm. Yeah.
1: Uh, so, yeah I mean, so is that is that a fair characterization of and when they their their general policy preferences were to smooth out unbalanced growth, right? And I and
2: think so. I think that's a story that's not being paid a lot of attention to. I huh. have a new article coming out in the China Quarterly exactly evaluating the social legacy of the Hu era. Uh, where I look at the set of policies we just talked about and how it affected the income distribution in the country. And it is true. Those policies put together help to reduce income inequality during those 10 years. I missed those 10
0: years. I missed huh? I miss, I miss the last decade. <laughs> the liberal goal. What did we call it? The, the golden, golden age of, of, lib- of Chinese liberalism. Under I mean, Huan-Wan. many yeah.
2: would uh, counter that story. I encounter plet- plenty Plenty saying who lacks charisma. Um, mm. So what? Which, <laughs> right. I mean, so from my research, I use data, usually national service, to estimate what policy effects are there, and we see the hard evidence. Another side of this story, though, is the Huwen era also saw huge growth in income inequality. This is true, yeah. Which their social policies and other measures couldn't entirely curb. So in the end, you see progress, you also see this growing income inequality trend and also the uh, wealth uh, accumulation at the very top. So it's hard for people, both scholars and the public, to reconcile these two sides of the story. And it's it's a mixed story.
1: Hey, cynical listeners. I want to thank our sponsor, Casper Mattresses, really quick and let you know that we've got a terrific promotion for you to help you get a good night's sleep and save big bucks. Get a Casper mattress delivered to your door for free with their wonderful 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial return policy and save $50. All you need to do to save $50 on a select Casper mattress is visit com slash and use the promo code supchina, S-U-P-C-H-I-N-A at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Pleasant dreams. And now back to the show.
0: Chin, so, you know, we were just talking about this goal of eliminating poverty by 2020, which uh, Xi Jinping, uh, the cosmic life president, uh, declared <laughs> in 2017. I mean, that's... Two years from now, it's not very long at all. What role does Dibao have in this? And is this a realistic goal?
2: So really, Xi Jinping initiated this targeted anti-poverty campaign in 2013, uh, during a time when he visited a remote village and said we have to achieve this. And in 2015... he he set
0: the date 2020 back then. yeah,
2: Yeah, and in 2015, the state council... Officially adopted it. It's called the battle against poverty. Mm-hmm. So, so there was a timeline and it is coming up very soon. Uh, so right now uh, it's amazing. I have this chart showing that the official projection of poverty reduction is each month, one million people should be moved out of poverty. And by 2020, that number will be zero.
1: Moving people out of poverty could just mean moving people from the countryside to the city, mm-hmm. uh, because as we've we noted earlier, urban residents, urban poverty doesn't count. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that part of of what, what's what's what's? That's bad?
2: very much part of the targeted anti-poverty campaign. It's called relocation or resettlement. So some rural residents are moved into nearby towns, uh-huh. usually not far away from yeah. their hometowns, and the government would uh, build some new houses for. Them uh, and move them in, and even give them a subsidy. To launch their new life in a new locality. But that's been challenging, as you can imagine, moving to a new place and start anew. Many of these residents lose access to their farmland, um, which is the source of their survivalhood for some. At least they get food to uh, live on. Another challenge as a social work professor is that they don't have the local network, they don't right. have social services, um, even people to talk to and be build a social support network. So that's a challenge. Uh, Another approach that's being used is to give people support, right? I give you money to raise pigs or chickens, um, and then you are supposed to uh, build on it and uh, earn enough money and escape from poverty. Um, That could be a good start, but that's also challenging to sustain. Um, depending on people's skills, whether there could be a uh, disease among the pigs or chickens. Uh, so so it's not easy.
1: So, Qin, just now you were talking about how social networks are, are, are really important, uh, when, a, especially when a family relocates from the countryside to, to a new town and, and how that's lacking. I often hear from Chinese friends that there is a, a strong cultural dimension to the whole p- problem of poverty in China. That is, uh, there's a strong sense of family obligation, and that sometimes translates into uh, manifestations of poverty being maybe less obvious or less common even. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any, in, in your experience, is there any truth to that claim? First of all, is there a lower likelihood of somebody in China just falling through the cracks and not being looked after uh, by family? And, and how different is this in rural China where presumably, you know, these kinds of ties are stronger versus urban China where often, as you say, mm-hmm. they're lacking?
2: Yeah, that's certainly an important point. There's a new, uh, small but growing body of research looking specifically at stigma related to poverty in China, which was much ignored in the earlier uh, period in research. Um, I totally agree. There is such a factor that face saving face is big in China, right? If your family members are suffering, not doing well, you probably don't want the public to know about that. Uh, At the same time, the socialist government claims this paternalist role of taking care of people's well-being. And uh, as part of the Dibao application and screening process, people's names and financial resources are posted. Uh, in the community and similarly in the targeted eradication poverty eradication campaign uh, if you go to a designated poor I mean a recognized poor household in front of the door there's a chart showing who you are how old you are what disease you might have and how oh. much money you are getting uh, so I mean that's, it's re- that's quite
0: humiliating I would imagine
2: uh, true uh, some people because of this choose not to participate either in the Dibao or the targeted campaign Campaign, but in the targeted campaign, you may not have the final say of whether you want to participate or not, because uh, the local officials are designated as the one who is responsible for mo- for moving you out of poverty. So you, you you have to probably work together with them. So so stigma is serious. At the same time, other people would say, well, I have needs and the government is responsible for providing to me. So there is also this pride of being taken care of. By the government. I mean, in the rural areas, we see these villages with the older people and the younger people, right? Many migrant workers are away. That's right. And uh, they deserve the support, right? They are less absolutely um, less stigmatized than the working age or the able-bodied. Yeah, that makes so sense. So-called. Yeah. So it's certainly going to be a challenge. One thing I do advocate for in my book is increased social services, child care, senior care for these both urban and rural poor who need it. Many able-bodied Dibao recipients want to work, but they have to take care of family members. Uh, So they need not only the work support, but also the social service support. Chen,
0: can you tell us about the means testing that's used to determine eligibility for Dibao? Mm -hmm. And and what problems does that create?
2: Mm -hmm. So Dibao's means testing, I call it a two and a half test. So the first test is means, right? How much income you have. Um, Localities, the local governments have some room to determine what are counted as income, right? Your regular income, your agricultural income, or remittance income. Some local governments also consider assets, whether you have a um, refrigerator or air conditioner. Um, Automobiles, of course, is off-limit. The other test is your household registration status. You have to have local hukou. If you are a migrant, you are not eligible for the local benefits. The half test is what I refer to as behavioral test. So if you have a pet, you cannot get Dibao because <laughs> that's a luxury good. Um, sometimes if you want to send your child to a private school where you need to pay more, you also lose your Dibao eligibility because if you can afford that, then you are not struggling in your livelihood. So it's complex in reality.
1: Very uh, so, how does that come? I mean, is is the means test in other countries comparable, or is this more onerous?
2: So means testing is not easy in any country. Uh, some countries have a better information system. So, for example, in the U.S., uh, usually if you work above the ground, right, it's illegal work, the tax system will show your income. It's harder to hide. In China, we don't have that system. So it's ha- harder to detect people's real income, and that's why the local uh Officials would invite the community members to participate and contribute information so that uh, you have a better judgment of whether people are telling the truth. That, of course, invites other problems of uh, privacy, stigma, etc.
0: What does your research show about people moving from welfare to work in China? And do you think there are lessons that China could teach other countries facing major poverty problems?
2: In the book, I have one chapter devoted to -to welfare-to-work transitions. Uh, I describe all the local initiatives. So this is largely a a local initiative. Local governments try to push uh, people off the welfare role and uh, to sustain uh, through work and labor force participation. Um, There's a wide range of different approaches used. Some are punitive. So if you don't, sweep the streets or distribute these brochures, you lose your debout benefits. So you have to engage in what's called voluntary mandatory work <laughs> to be able to get a DBA. Uh Some a other
1: Orwellian <laughs> <phrase>.
2: <laughs> Some other uh, local governments use uh, some more providing incentives. So if you find a job, I'm not going to discontinue your deba right away. I will allow you three or four months so that you really stabilize in this job. And then I will take your deba away. Some other local governments provide job trainings or job referrals. The not very encouraging part of this is there are many initiatives, but there's not many evaluations at all. So as a scholar, to draw lessons from these local initiatives, it's hard because there's not a longitudinal uh, study of being able to track people and see whether these are working or not.
1: Let's talk maybe more anecdotally, but uh, doesn't it seem like I mean, the way that I remember reading it in your book, that there, there's sort of a perverse incentive that disincentivizes people from actually seeking mm-hmm. work if they're on d
2: That's exactly right. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. More? So right now, d serves as a gatekeeper for an array of social assistance benefits. If you happen to be eligible to be deemed eligible for Dibao, you also open doors to other social assistance benefits, such as medical assistance or housing assistance or education assistance. Uh, Only a small proportion of the Dibao beneficiaries get those benefits. But if you're not on DBAO, you don't get on the radar of the local officials. So um, in that way, it really deters people from leaving Dibao. They may not be worried about losing the 300 Dibao benefits, but they want the housing support or the medical support more than the Dibao benefits. So that's a challenge that uh, I think the Chinese government needs to deal with. I mean, in other countries, the same thing exists probably to a lesser degree because... For the government to run a large national welfare program, you need some clear cuts, right? So, DBAO provides this very strict screening process. So, you know, these people ideally would be deserving. Uh, But at the same time, the tied benefits really deters people from leaving welfare.
0: That's really interesting, something I'd never thought about. and you mentioned uh healthcare uh, that that's sometimes a part of what they get but your research also shows that debar recipients tend to spend a hell of a lot of the money they get on on healthcare how have the recent reforms in china's healthcare system impacted dibor recipients
2: mm-hmm. there have been expansions in the healthcare system especially for the urban non-working or unemployed right. and also the rural residents so that's a positive story. At the same time, they don't cover the very poor very well because the reimburse rates for those two schemes, especially the rural healthcare system is very low and it's often not transferable. So if you go to another place to get treatment, uh, the reimbursement is either low or non-existent. So, I mean, poor people cannot afford to do that. Um, so, yes, uh, one of the key findings through my research and many others is that Dibao recipients, supposedly, they're, they need to use the benefits to sustain their livelihood, right? That's the purpose. But many use the money to get health care. And other
1: sort of human capital factors, right?
2: Right. So in the urban areas, many debau families use the money to invest in children's education right. in the hopes that they would somehow escape the poverty trap. In rural areas, however, we don't see that trend, which is also troubling and sad for me because in recent years, the returns to education in rural areas, rural China, is not very high. So many um, rural children would leave schools, uh, drop out in middle school and pursue work opportunities. Uh, And these families probably rationally chose not to use the debunked money or other money to invest in the children's education.
1: Kaushin, you very conveniently in your book lay out exactly what questions you're going to tackle in the book, which makes it very easy for Jeremy and me because we can just sort of lift the questions uh, right out of the the initial chapter. Uh, but let's start with a really big one, which is simply how effective has Debao been in targeting the poor and alleviating mm-hmm. poverty? And let's let's talk about what targeting means mm-hmm. uh, because you know there are some some you know special definitions of. Uh, what, what what is targeting, what is leakage, and, and what... what right. right, yeah. So what are the, the, the problems of targeting, and, and how big is the problem of leakage and yes.
2: so Yes, that's a very thorny issue, and that also ties back to what we talked about, the targeted uh, poverty eradication um, project, because uh, right now the focus is all about targeting uh, in the targeted campaign. So in Dibao itself... Um, to maximize Dibao's anti-poverty effects. Uh, targeting is essential. So if your income falls below the local Dibao line, then you qualify and you are targeted. But if you your income is above that line, you shouldn't be getting the benefit. In reality, though, there are many targeting errors through the survey research we did. Um, And that problem is more severe in rural areas than in urban areas because rural income is harder to capture. Uh, and uh, also fluctuates very much, so people may not necessarily be telling lies. But based on survey research, uh, where we ask people about their annual income, um, there's a gap between what they tell the administrators and tell the survey researchers.
1: And so, you think that they're they're over targeting uh, pretty substantially. There's a lot of people who are whose income is. Too high to really qualify them for DBAO Right, again, so
2: there are two types of targeting errors. One is what we call mistargeting, right? If my income is above the DBAL line, but I'm still getting the benefits, that's the mistargeting. other is called the leakage. So I really deserve the benefit, but I'm not included or covered by the DBAL benefits. Both are big, both are large errors, and the errors are especially large in rural areas. In the recent years, since 2012, the government really tried to uh, solve this problem or at least to reduce this problem. So there are a set of measures to reduce corruption uh, and scrutinize uh, the accuracy of the information people report. So there is a decline in the recent years, uh, but uh, more progress needs to happen. And also this ties to the new current targeted poverty eradication campaign because this new project or campaign is very much uh, based on targeting so there's a national system of the poor uh, currently about 50 or 55 million people there's a massive database and uh, that contains your family information And by 2020, every one of those people should be removed from this database. And that's, I mean, you cannot get more targeting than that. Right, right.
1: Once again, AI and big data are the solution.
2: (laughs) There's also the designated person who is responsible for moving you out of poverty, which is also in the database. Uh, That's usually a local official. Um, So this official, you can imagine, bears lots of burdens of uh, (laughs) having to ensure uh, the people he or she is responsible for move out of poverty and stay out of poverty.
1: And the clock is ticking.
2: (laughs) Very much so. Uh, Another aspect that I've discovered in my recent research is there are many um, corruption cases being uh, dealt with, uh, officials being disciplined. Uh, across uh, provinces specifically related to the targeted anti-poverty initiative.
0: Wow. So So they're finding ways to cream off money from it, essentially.
2: Um, yes, that's what the, um, that's what the news reports are about. Either to use the funds themselves or to have favoritism. So favor some people. Um, I have a new, uh, research that looks at how political elite connection would affect your chance of accessing Dibao. So uh-huh. if you have elite connections, you have a greater opportunity to access Dibao or other government benefits, but... uh,
1: You went to school with the or something like that.
2: Right. Uh, Actually, it's more above the village level. Uh So at the village level, right now, it's... uh, much better than before, less corruption. But if you have family members who are in the township leadership or even the county level, then this invisible influence, uh, not directly controlling your fate, but the influence would help you to gain access to those benefits.
1: So Kostin, you outlined a number of areas where DIBAL obviously isn't working particularly well, in the mistargeting and in the leakage. Uh, what are some of the other major policy design issues that you identify? And, and how would you propose to fix it uh, what are some of the easiest fixes that could actually be implemented
2: mhm um partly dibao is becoming narrower and narrower um, we don't know why, but right now, in both the urban and rural areas, Dibao's population coverage has been shrinking for the past few years. So in urban areas, right now, only about 2 to 2.5%, 2.5% of the urban population are getting Dibao. It used to be much higher, 4 or 5%. So, it's declining in rural areas similarly. uh, At the same time, we have this targeted anti-poverty campaign happening. So the emphasis is shifting. Um, For Dibao itself, um, it has played a somewhat positive role in reducing poverty. That's uh, a fact. So it worked to some extent. But I think the challenge is really to uh, provide a more comprehensive welfare system so that the people who need the other support, such as medical um, care, education, can get it from other channels, not to have to rely on DBAO. At the same time, the able-bodied, the working-age DBA recipients need to relieve their family care responsibilities and also be able to pursue some jobs in the labor market. Uh, Many of these are, I mean, in the research, we talk about how they are considered old. They are 40-some-year-olds. They are young, but they have been out of the labor force for too long. Their skills levels are not up to par in this rapidly developing society, Uh, and they just don't have a good chance in earning enough money in the market. So that's going to be a challenge. Chen, if I may change tack a little here.
0: You are a professor of social work, what is the state of social work and the role of social work in modern Chinese society, and how does it compare with the United States or European countries?
2: Wow. Uh, yes, I'm very proud to be a professor of social policy and the social work, and we have an increasing number of uh, Chinese students coming here to study. Right now, I think we have 10% of our student body in the master's program, from China. That's
1: wonderful.
2: Uh, It's great. And it's a trend happening in other universities too. And I see their uh, aspirations. Uh, They learn the skills. And they also gain the vision for helping to develop social work as a profession in China. So social work in China started or actually got revived because it really existed in the early stages uh, from the Western influence. But in the late 19 eighties. And I was one of the earlier cohorts to study social work in my undergraduate program. Um, So I stayed in the field. And I think Recently, in the recent years, there's a growing need of social work professionals in almost every regard of the Chinese society. So poverty alleviation, community development, health care, the rapid aging trend, uh, mental health. Um, so you name it. Every Uh, domain needs social workers. There's also a growing number of social workers trained both domestically and internationally who want to work in this field. Um, The the government is pushing and promoting uh, the social workers uh, to work both in the national and provincial big city level and also the grassroots level. So I think it will grow, but we collectively need to figure out uh, the role of social workers. I mean, the U.S. serves as a good example. Uh, Social workers, many work not only in the government, but also in the uh, uh, non-for-profit organizations uh, who get a lot of funding from the government and also from uh, the society to to provide services. And mainly, I think social workers are agents who connect people's needs with resources. People may not realize what resources are available, and social workers are knowledgeable about that. So they could bring those resources together and connect them with the people who are in need.
1: And what's the role of NGOs, actually, in China? You brought them up in the work of poverty alleviation. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it as substantial as you would find it, for example, here in the United States? Or?
2: um NGOs in China, there are many more, and actually many more domestic NGOs than before.
1: Congos too, yeah.
2: Yes, who are, some are participating in the poverty alleviation uh, project very actively. There's also, there's also this growth of uh, philanthropy uh, in connection with NGOs who focus on certain areas of social welfare or social well-being. So for example, some of my former students are working in the field of um, children, early childhood development mm. in China, which is so much needed. Some are working in healthcare, so how to connect social resources to provide the health insurance needed for families encountering um, severe disease, especially in the rural areas. So. The students um uh, the social workers are bringing these great ideas and organizations together to address these needs that the government may not be able to address in the short run
1: so does your your research into dBA uh offer any lessons about guaranteed minimum income or universal basic income which you know this is something that people are discussing a lot in the United mm-hmm. States now uh, yeah uh, in the context really of of Artificial intelligence and advanced robotics, and and the disruption that's going to bring to the job market, and a lot of people are talking about about uh, universal guaranteed income or uh, universal basic income. Oh, is it, is there some a better alternative for China perhaps than what's going on right now? I mean, there's a difference, right? Universal mm-hmm. basic income is it, it doesn't it's not minimum guaranteed. It's it's a disbursement to everyone, right, mm-hmm. irrespective of of yep. their income. Maybe that's ridiculously inflationary. I don't know what the economic impact I be. I think
2: but. it's, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned it. It's worth uh, debating and experimenting with in China because we've seen what Dibao can do and what Dibao uh, cannot achieve since 1993. So that's a long period of experimentation. Yeah. Uh, and as I pointed out, the gaps uh, in healthcare, in education, These multi-dimensional needs of people cannot be addressed by this single program. Um, Another challenge uh, I discovered in doing this book is the trap, the poverty trap that the children of these deba or poor families uh, are kept in. They cannot see hope of escaping poverty and seeking a better life opportunity. And guaranteed income is a very good channel for that. If you don't have to provide a guaranteed income to everybody in this big country, which is impossible, uh, but uh, whether you could do something for the children, right, to help launch their um, future, uh, that's uh, a great idea to experiment with. And I think in the U.S. we are actually doing that. There's a multi-site experiment of giving um, children from low-income families a fixed income of I don't recall whether it's $3,000 or $4,000, and then follow them for a few years to see how they will do, whether Mm -hmm. that will have a positive influence on these children and their families. I think in China, such experimentation would be beneficial, uh, especially given all the challenges these rural and migrant children are facing, uh, the lack of life opportunity. Interestingly, China in, I think, 2010 or 2011 had a national policy which uh, provided a universal guaranteed income to orphans, Ah. uh, which was a major breakthrough. Uh, It was later expanded to children living with HIV AIDS. Uh, Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. yeah, we don't have a very good evaluation of how this policy has been doing. No longitudinal studies on this, right? No, even just uh, pure snapshots, descriptive statistics, we don't have, maybe I should look into this, but that's that's example of a guaranteed income to a specific population very much in need.
0: Jin, how has how your book and your work more broadly been received within the community of policymakers in China who are actually working on poverty alleviation mm-hmm. I mean, with the target date for total poverty elimination fast approaching, I imagine it must have attracted a fair bit of attention.
2: Mm, thank you. I wish uh, it's more true than than what I observe. <laughs> um, so yes, I've been invited to give talks in China and also around the world about this book. Um, so it's been well received and many Officials and uh, scholars welcome this debate, right, to really uh, look at this program as a whole over time and see what's happening, what have worked, what have not worked, and draw lessons. So that's been a very positive experience for me. However, right now, at this point, there's no Chinese version yet. Um, so uh, so the reach of the book is uh, still Limited, wow, and I'm hoping that, that would happen sooner rather than later.
1: Have you heard any feedback directly from anyone in the Minjungju about this?
2: Mm-hmm. I've talked to and shared my findings with the people in the Minjung civil affairs system. Uh, they welcomed it. Uh, of course, uh, some of the. Evidence was hard for them to swallow, such as the targeting errors. Right. Uh, they don't uh, agree very much that uh, the targeting errors are that severe. Uh, but they also share with me, they are also genuinely puzzled by the declining trend in the Dibao's uh, population coverage. They don't know why, uh, which is interesting. Um, so so I, I, of course, look forward to publishing it in Chinese and having more discussions uh, about especially in relation to the targeted poverty eradication project.
1: Well, we really hope that you succeed in, in, in spreading the word and that people start t- taking your, your work very seriously in China. Xingao, thank you so much uh, for, for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, the book, again, is called Welfare, Work, and Poverty, social assistance in China. And we highly recommend it for anyone who's interested in this extraordinarily important effort. Uh, so before we pack up, let's make some recommendations. And before we do that, I do want to remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is produced in partnership with SUP China. Subscribe to our email newsletter or better yet, sign up for our Sub China access program. Get all sorts of goodies from us, including early commercial free versions of this very podcast. So, follow us on Twitter and on Facebook at at SubChina News and on to recommendations. Jeremy, kick us off. What do you have for us this week?
0: I would like to recommend a blog and Twitter feed uh, by a gentleman named Stephen Jones. That's uh, P H Stephen, S T E P H E N, Stephen blog, And he's on Twitter at Stephen Jones blog. Uh, Steve um, Jones. Steve Jones. (laughs) With a v <laughs> no, no not St- ah ah his blog, oh yeah, Twitter, his Twitter name is Steve Jones Confusingly, with a v. Yeah. very confusing anyway, um, he is an ethnographer who's been uh, traveling around rural China since the eighties, documenting folk religion uh, and and theater yeah. uh, and talking to uh, you know rural nuns and um Uh, people like this. And he's putting a lot of his photos uh, on his blog and uh, some of uh, his writing about these people and also uh, Chinese jokes and uh, other random things. So rather interesting to most of our listeners, I would imagine. Oh, great. That's an excellent recommendation. Yeah. I'll definitely have to check that out. Uh, Qin, what do you have for us?
2: Wow. I have many things on my mind, but I would recommend... Uh, the profound book by, it's an autobiography by Niancheng. Probably you both read it, Life and Death in Shanghai. I read it many years ago and I've been thinking about it quite a bit. Uh, it shows how human life, just an ordinary person, can be affected by the larger social, political um, happenings in the country. And she is uh, amazing woman and role model, how she managed the catastrophes in life and also shares this story with us. I'm going to reread the book myself. I would recommend it to anyone who is thinking about the changing times today in China and in the world. That book came out in the
1: 80s? I feel like maybe a long time ago. I read it. It's weird. I've had it on my shelf
0: forever and I've never actually read it. Have you read it? Really?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Have
0: you read it, Jeremy? No. uh, By the time I sort of got to it, I think I'd read so much scar literature and cultural revolution, horrible things going on in the cultural revolution. I just couldn't stomach it. But maybe I'm ready for it again after that recommendation.
2: (laughs) I mean, I read it, uh, of course, as a historic document as autobiography. I also read it as a mother who had to live through the horrible experience of losing her, not only her husband, but her daughter when her daughter was very young and still find meaning in life. And by sharing this story, which took courage and and discipline to write it. Uh, so I'm just uh, very inspired by it. And I Imagine many people read it. Now I know people uh, need more urging to read it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> great, great, great. So my recommendation is: uh, so the the biographer Ron Chernow has written, you know, some of the the great biographies of, of American men, including, of course, George Washington. But uh, his new one on Ulysses S. Grant is just phenomenal. I'm I'm about halfway through it right now. Uh, listening to it on an audiobook, and it's a, it's a terrific audiobook. It's a forty-eight hour long audiobook. Uh, you can take it along with you on long flights. Uh, it's it's amazing. And Grant, I had I you know known something about him. I'd read a lot about him in in various Civil War books. But this this takes you know it's from the entirety of his life uh, and his incredibly meteoric rise. I and mean, it treats very very squarely with you know the, uh, with his alcoholism. And he reminds me, it's really funny. I mean, everyone who listens to this show probably knows I'm I'm a fanatic for Three Kingdoms. But uh, in in Three Kingdoms, there's uh, there's one of the very important advisors to Liu Bei named Pang Tong, the young phoenix. And Grant reminds me an awful lot of of Pang Tong. There's stories in there that just are almost exact parallels. It's just, it's really interesting. Uh so I, I highly recommend it. It's incredibly readable and, and he's a fascinating character. So yeah, so the the new biography of Ulysses S. Grant by Ron Chernow. Mm-hmm. Uh, wonderful. I mean, thank you, G- Gautin, so much for taking the time. Uh, it was just incredibly eye-opening to read about this and uh, and to chat with you here. It's opened my eyes still further. Uh, we look forward to checking back in with you as the target date for mm-hmm. the zero poverty thing approaches.
2: Wow. <laughs> I'll prepare for it. Okay.
0: Great.
1: Right. Well, and- Yep,
0: the pressure's on you and uh, all
2: the <laughs> officials. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: So thanks very much. Thank you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash SubChina News and follow us on Twitter at, at SubChina News. Thanks for listening and we will see you next week. Take care.